Hello, and welcome to another episode of Playing in the Sandbox, Conversations in Pedagogy. Once again, I am Katie Troyer, and once again, I am joined by Lauren Malone. Hi, everyone. As promised, and it's been a, long, a promise that has been long in the making, this episode is on Lecture Awesomeness, which is the official title of the episode. And Lauren and I were both excited to, to talk about lectures because um, I think that a lot of people kind of treat them as like veggies that no one really wants, especially students, but maybe not even faculty. And so we just kind of like force people to eat them anyway. Um, but the truth is, is that people can and do like veggies, um, but we do have to do some work to make them them taste good. Um, and I think it's also important um, to remember that just because something tastes good doesn't mean it's not still good for you. So this doesn't mean that we're talking about like edutainment or trying to like freestyle it or somehow remove the intellectual content that is a critical part nor are we advocating for getting rid of them, right? Veggies can be a lovely part of your meal. Um, but we are gonna talk about specifically ways that um, we can get students to be excited about lectures um, and, and building in student buy-in so that it doesn't feel to them like it's just something they have to do before they can get to the good stuff, but it actually feels like they are at the good stuff. Um, so we have a couple of strategies that are sort of big things and then some very specific activities or methods that you could incorporate into your classroom um, that would require minimum to, to moderate degrees of, of work on your part to, to transform a, a fantastic component of our learning experience. Yeah, so I'm going to actually extend the veggies uh, metaphor just by a little bit, actually by a lot. Um, and we're going to talk about lectures as dessert. So if we think of the reading that students do as the recipe, homework as gathering ingredients, and our in-class activities or our practical applications like our labs and those things as cooking, then we can think of lectures as dessert. And one way to kind of change the way we think about them to move in that direction is by actually changing the order of the class. So instead of having lectures at the start, letting the class build momentum toward the lecture. Um, and this can also help students make some more explicit connections between the things that they've already done, the things that they're currently doing or about to do, doing projects on, um, and the things you're talking about in class. So having those lectures be the culmination of what happens in class. So devil's advocate, how would I do that? Or so, so often, right? We have lectures be the first thing because we, we feel that it's the sort of like lit review, right? You need all this content before you can do X. So how do we put lectures uh, at the end if it's oftentimes the way that we, you know, get students the knowledge they need to do the activities? So one way to do it is to talk to students about what they're reading, right? The class prior and really foreground the things that they need to take away to be able to do the activities. Because a lot of times the activities are a little bit more connected to 
the key concepts, right, um, of the course. And then when we lecture, we're lecturing to give examples or to put it into context and those sorts of things. And so if you're talking to students about, okay, we're going to read this chapter for next class, the core concepts that you really need to focus on are A, B, and C, and you should be ready to do this activity next time we come to class. Um, then that kind of gets them ready and in the mindset of focusing on those things, but also um, looking forward to actually utilizing those different concepts. And then you can, again, use the things that they've read and the things that they've done in that in-class activity to um, be sort of a jumping off point for the lecture where you then put it into context for them. Yeah, I really like that because basically you're saying that there's there's two components to, to most lectures. There's the sort of tutorial mode, right? Where you're saying, here's what you need to know how to do before you can do X. And then there's the, the part where you're sort of synthesizing it and putting it all together, um, which is the dessert part, right? The, the part mm -hmm. that people are more excited about. Um, and, and another way to, to build student buy-in is to incorporate your students into the lectures and and you know that can be as, as silly as just you know when you're giving an example using one of your students names um but a a more effective method um actually works perfectly if you have been building your lecture as sort of the culminating piece and that is as students have been raising questions about the text and engaging in activities um you'll be able to pay attention to what interests or speaks to your students um, and, and as you find what is capturing their attention the most about a given topic, um, or it, something like what, what it happens, what they happen to be interested in, in terms of, um, pop culture, you can start to use those examples that really actually speak to your students instead of just the ones that make you the happiest. Um, and so Lauren, you had a good example where, you know, if, if you're talking about adaptation, um, and you realize that none of your students like horror, um, going with the Stephen King adaptation may not be the way to go. Yeah. Um, but, and that, and that, what's nice about a lot of stuff in, in the humanities is like adaptation studies is that there are just endless examples. So it can not close to endless examples that, you know, if, if, if King doesn't work for you, you could go to Harry Potter or Percy Jackson or just about anything else. Um, but, even in, in things that feel more limited, right? If you realize that what your students are really interested in when it comes to um, the antebellum South is particularly issues of religion, and you know that because that's what they have been gravitating towards on their activities and assignments and reflections, then spend a little bit more time on that, right? Spend a little bit more time talking to the students about the things that, that matter to them, and then they'll be excited to, to eat that dessert. Yeah. And also kind of moving from that, it's okay to what I like to call embracing your inner nerd or talk to them like you're a Tumblr fangirl. Um, so it's okay to get excited about the things that you're teaching in class. So um, if I'm giving a lecture on, again, let's use adaptation and media as an example, then I can tell students, okay, so the process of a novel getting adapted into a movie is this. Um, the studio, or uh, if it's indie, maybe the director will fill out this contract and they will buy the characters for a certain amount of time and they have a certain amount of time to do X, Y, and Z, and we can go through it clinically like that. Or 
the other option is I can say, okay, how many of you are still upset at the Percy Jackson adaptations? How many of you still have burning rage every time you see Logan Lerman? Because they could have been so good. You know, Adele, we could have had it all. Um, and then we move from that, right? So asking them, okay, what, what made you happy to see this? What got you excited in the trailer? What let you down in the movie? what characters were missing, what plot points were missing, and then using those things that they're already really, really jazzed up about to talk about that process of adaptation and talk about, okay, well, yes, they have the Percy Jackson characters, but nowhere does it say in the contract that Annabeth absolutely has to have blonde hair. They fixed it in the sequel, but it doesn't say that they had to, right? So they could just let Alexandra Daddario do what she wanted with her hair. And we can kind of incorporate those things. But I think that it's also really important to understand that um, I do know that not everybody's teaching media classes, right? So it's easy for me to be nerdy and excited about things. Um, but some of us have really, really serious topics that we deal with or topics that really don't lend itself to maybe pop culture examples or thinking about things in that way. So I think it's important to remember that kind of embracing your inner nerd and being passionate about something doesn't necessarily mean you have to be silly or happy or hyper or anything like that. It means you need to know how to show the inner workings of something in a way that captures these moments with a genuine passion. Um, you need to be able to put the the clinical parts into a larger context that the students really can grab onto so that might mean tying in current events that might mean building specific building in specific narratives from people who have lived through certain um, historical events or something like that um, but you can definitely have that seriousness along with um, the passion and and I don't know about you, but I, I remember distinctly that sort of effective, I would have professors who it was almost like they were, the, you know, animatronic, uh, you know, creatures uh, when they were doing the lectures, right? And it was just like, and now I will tell you about this. And then they would like exit lecture mode and we would start talking about things and then I would understand why they devoted their life to that subject. Um, and I think there's no need for that to happen. Um, and as you said, media studies is, is um, for both of us, our sort of go-to for a lot of examples. But I remember very distinctly uh, my biology professor whose area of specialty was the reproduction of strawberries. Um, he was genuinely passionate about that in a way that I didn't know one could be passionate. And I realized that, uh, that I needed to know more, right? As a student, <laughs> I needed to know more in a way that I hadn't needed to know prior to that moment. One of the things I talk about all the time, um, which again, it's not surprising that, that this is something that interests me as a storyteller, but narratives are the way that we understand the world around us. Um, you know, historians and philosophers and, and lots of different people have agreed that the reason that every culture has an origin story of some kind of the world is because the way that we understand the world is by creating a narrative and narratives need to have a couple things. Absolutely. They need to have a clear beginning, middle and end. And a beginning, middle and end should not be um, when the class period starts, <laughs> you know, 25 minutes in and at the 50 minute mark. There, there should be a trajectory. And so one way to think about it is um, in terms of a literary concept, and that is what's known as Freytag's Pyramid. Um, and Freytag's Pyramid says that, you know, you're going to begin with your exposition, the information we need 
who, what, when, where, why. And then you're going to start having this rising action and things are going to be building towards something. And then there's this climactic moment where everything just like hits the fan or comes together, whatever the case might be. And then we slowly wrap things up and then we have a very distinct and clear resolution. We crave that narrative pattern um, and true, truly masterful pieces are not just uh, rising action climax, falling action, but sort of a, a more of a mountain range, right, than a pyramid. Um, and that's, that's what we should be doing for our students with our narratives. Um, I was talking to a colleague who is teaching a class that is on um, villains and heroes, but it's villains and heroes in science. And so the entire class is going to be looking at who have we crafted as the heroes in these narratives. A lot of them are environmental studies and, and what to how it happens when we use this phrase of invading species or um, and that is a story. And students are going to remember that, although it is incredibly clearly a science class with a lab, that narrative is what's going to help them understand the random facts. Absolutely. And another thing is making sure that we're articulating how everything fits into the bigger picture. So fits into the bigger story outside of um, the content that we're teaching in the classroom or bigger movements. So thinking about teaching, um, teaching my social media class, for example, um, I love our unit on memes. And frankly, if I could just teach a class on memes, I would be so excited. Um, but it's like, okay, we've looked at all of these absolutely hilarious memes about Spider-Man, but I have to articulate for students as we're going along, okay, here's what these are making us feel or think or understand about the way pop culture is structured. Here's what it's making us feel is important about pop culture. Here's how we as fans are actually contributing to pop culture through the construction of memes. But also, that's not where it stops, because memes have an impact on things like the Black Lives Matter movement and radicalization of white supremacy and those sorts of things that are super serious. And so when we're talking about building these narratives, it also means making sure that we're making those bigger picture connections um, and understanding, again, as Katie said, like our world as a narrative and how we fit into it and how this content fit, fits into it. And all of that is to say that what, what you have to do is to explain and clarify the so what factor, right? So what, so actually, Lauren, this is so cheesy. I just got chills <laughs> when you talked about like when you shifted from like, and memes are not just fun. And then you were like, but let's get real. Like I, I felt myself actually... Sh like I did, I got goosebumps because I was like, oh yeah, this is why it matters. This is the so what factor. So one of the things that I think our students often are not sure, especially when lectures happen before the rest of their learning, right, is they haven't been given context. So they don't know what the stakes are and they don't know why it matters. Um, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with explicitly articulating it, even going so far as to say, and the reason this matters is, right, like those cues are going to only help our students to realize that we are talking about real world, high stakes things, even when we're talking about memes. When you give them those hooks that they can latch onto, it's like giving people tent posts, right? It gives them the structure from which they can build and construct the rest of their learning around what you're talking about. So I think the one of the last things that we want to talk about is active learning. So I think that at some point we have this idea or we got this binary between active learning or lecture or discussion based versus lecture and those sorts of things where 
if you're doing lecture, that's not active learning. And if you're doing active learning, that can't possibly be lecture. And I would like to abandon that idea. We need to get rid of that binary. Yeah. So set it free. Yes, yes. Free ourselves. We are we are all now unshackled. Um, so I think that we can think of lectures as active learning. And some of the ways to actually do that are really, really small tweaks to our lectures that we can make. And the first one is just teaching them how to take notes. This is one of those weird things that we assume students know because obviously so-and-so taught them. Obviously they learned it in K-12 or obviously they learned it in first year experience or obviously they learned it somewhere else. Um, and that might be true, but a lot of times it isn't. And even if it is true, the way we take notes for different fields is vastly different. Um, and so giving just one day or half of a day to working with them in terms of taking notes um, can be so helpful for the idea of active lecture, right? And so going forward when they're listening to your lectures, they've already been prepped on um, not only how to take notes, but the expectation that they do take notes. So for me, I actually dedicate one of the first classes out of the semester to annotation, um, annotating readings, traditional note taking, and then sketch noting. We run a sketch noting workshop. Most of them have never heard of sketch noting before, which is basically just using basic shapes and drawings to kind of make your notes more visual and more organized. Um, and so we do that and then for the rest of the class, they have an idea of how they like to actually take notes or how they actually like to annotate their readings. Um, and some of them jump onto sketch noting full force and they use it in all of their classes. Some of them only use it in my class. Some of them just stick with traditional note taking. But the point is we're giving them options and we're giving them the idea that this is engagement, right? This isn't the point where you sit back and just kind of let the words wash over you but this is the point where you're still engaging with the material. And I could see you, it would be really easy to use that and to do a sort of training wheels type approach where like for the first, tell them for the first two weeks, I'm gonna pause at various moments and say, you know, like this is something I think you should take a note on um, and then ask them, you know, and then give them a moment. But then like a couple weeks in, you could say, okay, um, we're gonna spend five minutes at the end of class. I wanna know what you took notes on, what you thought were the key points, right? Like, mm -hmm. and so you can, it. it it's just such an effective way and it doesn't take much time. Um, I think that's really lovely. Mm -hmm. um, I think something else uh, is that, you know, we, we kind of associate um, the lecture, especially like in pop culture with um, the the adults in uh, Charlie Brown that are like, you know, just going them wah, wah, wah. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then students are just kind of sitting there having everything wash over them. Um, and so then when we get to like the, the quote, question portion where we say things like, um, you know, and, and who can tell me what year the Civil War started? Um, <laughs> I, I always feel, even when it's only like a three second pause, a little bit like the, the teacher in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, right? Like anybody, anyone. <laughs> um, and, and there's no need for that um, because you can make it so that students are anticipating their role and their involvement. So one of the things that Lauren, you've mentioned you do is that you will actually say things like, in the next lecture, there will be a slide with a question that you five, name the people, will have to answer. Brace yourself for that. Um, and that can make sure that they check in on whether people are doing the reading, 
as well as to, to kind of begin to see if they're getting the subject. Um, there are other things that you can do that, that happen um, either during the process or at the end. Um, Stephen Brookfield has the critical incident questionnaire, which has questions like, you know, what surprised you the most about today's class? Um, what, what did you find most helpful? You could take something like that and tweak it um, for, for the lectures, right? And ask them to be completing this at the very end, right after. And so they know ahead of time um, what they're gonna do. Or you could tell people at the end of this class, you all have to create a 60 second summary of this lecture, um, uh, you know, a micro lecture of your own that again, they're paying attention all the way along because they know that their interaction is a critical part of it, not just something that may happen. Absolutely. Also, this is a good way to bring in the annotation and sketch noting too, because if you're building in these sites of interaction within the lecture, a really easy thing to do is um, let's say you have a 15 lecture, uh, 15 slide lecture. Um, after every five slides, one slide that says um, you four students name the students, let's take a picture of your sketch notes and add them to our class Padlet. And then just have a link on that slide. So once they do it, you can click the link and go to it and look and see. And that's another way of checking for understanding, which I know is a huge thing right now um, because we're still online or at least half online. So not being able to be in the classroom and check for understanding with sort of the physical cues that we normally can, um, this can be a, an easy way of um, having one more tool in that toolkit for that. Um, and then lastly, in terms of, uh, of active learning for lectures, uh, one of the things that sometimes happens is we'll have a lecture and then we'll open it up for questions or for discussions, and then our extroverts will take control. Um, and a lot of us can kind of mitigate that, and so we call on the introverts. Uh, which makes the introverts panic and it makes them less likely to participate in future. Um, but I think there is something to be said for quiet learning too. So what we want to do is harness the power of the introverts. And I am an introvert, so I can say that. Um, but one thing that you can do is ask them to be sort of the back channel of your class, right? So if you know that a student isn't necessarily really gung-ho about raising their hand, or they're not gung-ho about you know, speaking in public, assuming of course that your class is not a public speaking class, you don't have to make them. Um, so you can ask them to take notes and build in opportunities for responses. Um, I do class on Discord, so we have an entire channel that's dedicated to note-taking that all of the students have access to. Uh, but you can do it on Padlet, you can create a forum for it on T-Learn, um, or whatever LMS you're using, assuming that some people are listening from other schools now. Um, but there's lots of different ways to build in sort of notes. And again, it reinforces that idea of actively taking notes during the lecture, actively engaging during the lecture. Um, but running back channel is another, um, another way of getting students going. So um, I've had students who they're keeping an eye on the chat during the lecture and they might not be raising their hand, but every time someone puts in a little question about something that's confusing them, they will go on and answer it. So it's something that I can go back and maybe clarify or add points to, or just moderate and making sure, make sure things aren't going off the rails, but it's the students kind of really taking control of their learning. Um, my students also really like putting together summaries, so uh, usually ours come in the form of hashtags. So if you're having, um, students who are 
a little bit more introverted, a little less likely to jump in in the discussion session, in the lecture session, having them being kind of the archivists of your class and organizing those things that students are adding in terms of summary or hashtags. And what's nice about that is that you're basically dismantling another incorrect binary, and that is is that you're either interactions are either between faculty and students or between students and students, right? And that it's not uh, a community of inquiry where everyone is involved, right? And so lectures in this way are allowing there to, to, to dismantle that idea that, that lectures are the moment between just you and the student as collective. Um, instead, it's, it's a true community. And I think that's, that's fantastic. I um, attended a talk by uh, Dr. Keith Lyle. Um, he's a professor of psychological and brain sciences at the University of Louisville. He came and gave a talk on um, student memory and ways that we can we can engage in, in better student memory practices. And I remember very distinctly um, one of his comments, which was that his sister has a uh, magnet on her fridge that says something like, "I don't remember. I don't care if my students remember the facts that I taught them. I just want them to remember." Um, you know, how much they were appreciated or valued or something like that. And he was like, really? Do we really not care at all that our students don't remember <laughs> things? Um, and and I, and the goal, right, the goal of, of what we do, yes, we are hoping to instill um, skills like critical thinking, um, learning how to critically read, uh, learning how to balance a chemical equation. Um, but we are also hoping that they will remember content knowledge. Um, that, that is our goal, is that they will remember lectures. Uh, so Lauren and I decided we would think about what lectures do we remember best um, from from our long time students. Um, and I won't lie, it took us a little while to, to <laughs> think of them, um, because I think that, that we'd had a lot of lectures that were just the sort of more um, someone getting up delivering something and then sitting back down. But we came up with a couple that we still remember very distinctly, um, in part because they were doing the types of, of things to get student buy-in. Um, and so Lauren, what, what were your examples? So I've got two, uh, both from my master's program, and one was uh, in a technical writing class. Um, and the subject was uh, writing effective instructions, right? Um, so we were getting the lecture, but as our instructor lectured us. He was actually he actually had given us a set of instructions to something I can't remember. It was something something nerdy um, and technical, uh, but uh, it might have been like how to build a model airplane or something like that. But he gave us a set of instructions, and as he was lecturing, he was asking us to actually revise the set of instructions as the lecture took place. So then, when he did stop and pause and say, "Does anyone have questions, or can anyone give me an example of this from your?" Um, from your lecture notes, our lecture notes was actually practice, right? We're actually practice and putting it into place. Um, so I had that. And then also I had a class on writing London, which was basically uh, location and how it plays an important part of our writing process. Um, and so we were having a lecture on understanding locations. And we basically had to do a virtual scavenger hunt as the lecture took place. Um, so figuring out based on what he was talking about to us and the concepts that he was talking about where in London he was actually pinpointing. It was very hard um, because London is a large city and also just the knowledge was very, very microscopic. So you had to really, really know 
your stuff to be able to kind of piece it together. But it was fun because he told us that that's what it was going to be. Um, and we weren't, you know, blindsided and trying to stress out about this. It was more, uh, let's see how this works in real time kind of thing. That sounds amazing. Um, and, and my examples are, or my first example is very similar in that, you know, it, it was because there was an, a clear involvement between the content being delivered by the instructor and what I was doing as the student. Um, I remember distinctly in the year that I studied abroad in Germany, um, we had a lecture that was over the history of, of the city of Heidelberg. And it was, they didn't do it before we went to the city, right? So they were like, and don't forget to pay attention to this castle and to that castle. They did it when we were in the city, um, when we were in those places. And so essentially it was a walking tour. Um, but I remember it so distinctly because I could see the narrative, right? I could see how things were being shaped. Um, I was being asked to do something which was to be very uh, sort of in the moment and viscerally there. I can also say that the one of the conference presentations that I remember the most, which is kind of like a mini lecture of the many, many conferences I've attended, um, <laughs> was one where she, she presented a so what factor on a text I was really familiar with and excited about. So she had buy-in from me because I wanted to talk to listen about it was, it was Stephen King's The Shining. Um, and um, she had a so what factor of, of her argument about why this text mattered that just blew my mind. And and I remember it so distinctly because she she fangirled over the text, over her um, theory. And, and then I fangirled with her. Right. Um, <laughs> and so I, I think that that's just something that is, is so incredibly important. So hopefully that has given you all some um, ideas to get started or ideas for next steps, maybe. Um, but next time we're going to get super meta. So we're going to be talking about podcasting, uh, specifically podcasting in the classroom. A few reasons um, why it can be super amazing and a few different ideas for the types of activities you can do with your students. Yay. I can't wait to podcast about podcasting. <laughs> all right. Bye, everyone.